0: Iron John, uh, tells the story of an aboriginal tribe. Uh, This tribe would gather young boys at a certain age to come together uh, with males of the tribe to, to be alone. To enter into the process of manhood. And they would gather the boys together and they would tell them stories of their forefathers who had done great things but they would tell them particularly the story of one of their great forefathers who had sat under a tree and wrestled with a demon and in the end of the wrestling won and as evidence of it lost one of his teeth. And as they would uh, tell the story, the story to the boys, they would point the tree out to the boys in the distance and the boys would would squint their eyes to look and, and, and get a picture of it. And while they would do that, men of the tribe would walk around them and punch them in the mouth so that each of them would lose a tooth. And at the end of that ritual, they would go home and thus become men. So that's how you make a man. You wonder how they made women. Um, But, you know, life can feel just like that. That every inch forward seems like new ground fought for that every developmental stage seems to require some pound of flesh. That it doesn't come easy. In fact, I I love the words of uh, one songwriter who says, I know it's everyone's sin. You have to lose to learn how to win. Why is that? Why does life have to come so hard sometimes, why does it have to come with so much struggle? This morning, as we continue our series called, God, What Did You Mean By That?, we're going to look at this. This series has been about looking at passages in the scripture that are difficult passages, even strange passages, that when you come across them, you think, God, what the heck did you mean by that? Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of those strange, difficult passages and in the midst of it, get an understanding of why is it that we seem to have to struggle in life? Why is it that every inch forward sometimes can feel like ground we had to fight for? The passage of scripture that we're going to look at comes from Genesis chapter 32, and we're going to take it up at verse 15, uh, verse 22. And this is what we read. That night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the fort of Jaboth. Now, uh, let me just stop there because I, I got to give you some history. Because we're we're like right in the middle of a story where Jacob is sending off his wife and his children Uh, first of all who was Jacob Uh, Jacob was an important person in the Bible in fact half of the book of Genesis you're going to find Jacob's name written all over the place from Genesis chapter 25 right up to Genesis chapter 50 Uh, Jacob was the son of Isaac and his grandfather was Abraham his mother was Rebecca and he was born a twin. And he was given the name Jacob, which means usurper or deceiver. Now, who would give a name to, to such a child? Well, the interesting thing is you see it right at the very beginning of his birth in fact if you're a psychology fan or if you've ever studied psychology and you've ever ever studied personality and they look and they say you know this person are you born born with personality or you develop personality well this kind of answers the question because what you see is personality is something that develops right in the womb it's something that god gives to each person but with jacob is aggressive and and it's it's uh he's a schemer. In fact, we're told that while he and his twin brother Esau were in the womb, they literally fought with each other in the womb. Now, for those of you who ever carried bore children, can you just imagine what that would be like having twins fighting in the womb? In fact, uh Rebekah prayed to God and asked him just that question. And this is what we read. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And that's basically what we see. When Jacob comes out of the womb, his brother Esau comes first. And you see Jacob grabbing his heel. Now, uh, what do we know about the two? Uh, We know that Esau was um, probably a person who wasn't the brightest bulb in the package. He was a guy who who was hairy. He was a guy who just spent most of his time outside hunting. And he wasn't overly sharp. Jacob, on the other hand, was a guy who spent most of his time indoors. In fact, he's what you would call a mama's boy because he took to his mother, his mother took to him, and, and his plan was basically to do everything he could to steal his brother's position as a firstborn. In fact, there's one of my favorite stories is that Esau uh, comes in after one of his great hunting trips and he's starving. And Jacob's inside, and he's making this stew. And he says to, and his brother says, give me some of that. And so Jacob says, I'll give it to you if you give me your birthright. Now, birthright was a big deal because if you got birthright, that simply meant that when your father died, you got everything. And all the other brothers had to fall in line and do what you said. And so Jacob says to his hungry Brother who isn't overly bright, give me your birthright and I'll give you some stew. And his brother does. Which is a sermon in itself because you think about all the times that we have settled for less, all the times that we have traded in something great that God has given us for something temporal in this world. Well, not only does he steal the birthright by deceiving his brother or by basically uh, getting his brother to sell it, later he tricks his father along with his mother. His mother sees that Esau is sent out on a trip to go gather a fresh game for his father because Esau loved the fresh wild meat that his son would uh, go hunt up for him. And so while he was out doing it, His mother came up with a a scheme, and the scheme was this. She was going to make up a stew for the father, and then she was going to put all sorts of animal hair on, um, on Jacob's arms and then cover him in the brother's coat so that he would feel like the brother and he would smell like the brother. So when he brought Isaac, his father, the stew, his father, his father tasted it and it was good, and he thought, "But that's you know who it was." Jacob said that he was Esau. Now his father, even though his eyes were growing dim, thought, "Now nah, this—you sound more more like Jacob." And so he pulled them in close and he felt his arms and said, "Well, that, he feels like Esau. I mean, he is as hairy as they come." And he pulled them in, and he smelled them, and he smelled like Esau. And so he said, Well, if it looks like an Esau and smells like an Esau, it feels like it, he's an Esau. And so he gave him the birthright, he gave him the official blessing. Well, meanwhile, Esau comes back and is going to present his father with the stew that he just made of the fresh game that he hunted. And as he asked for his father's blessing, his father says, I already gave it away to your brother. Your brother tricked and deceived me and I thought it was you and I gave him the birthright. And and the thing about this is once you gave a birthright, it was like getting married. You couldn't take it back. Esau was ticked. So ticked that his mother overheard him make a vow that as soon as the old man passed away, he was going to make stew out of Jacob, and so hearing this, Rebecca pulled Jacob aside and said, "Look, you got to get out of here for a while because your brother is going to have your head." And so Jacob takes off, and as he and she sends him off uh, to her brother's house, Laban, in a place called Haran. So as he makes his way to Haran, he falls asleep. And as he's asleep, he has this dream, and it's kind of a famous dream you might have heard of, called a dream of Jacob's ladder. He has this dream where he sees this ladder going to heaven with angels going up and down it, and then God says to him in this dream that I am going to use you to make a great nation. Your descendants are going to be many, and they are going to fill this world, and you are going to be a blessing. Jacob wakes up in the morning, and he gets a pile of rocks to remember what God has said. He calls the place Bethel, and then he leaves, and he finally makes it to Haran, and while he's there, he sees Laban's daughter, Rachel. Rachel is beautiful. It's love at first sight. He sees her, and and that's what he wants for Christmas. And so he he goes to Laban and he says, "I want to marry your daughter. And since we're family, I get first shot at her, which all sounds pretty weird, but that's how they did things." Um, and so Laban says, "All right, you can have her, but here's the deal: you got to do seven years of work for me. You got to come on my farm, you got to come on my land, and you got to work it with me. And after seven years," I'll give her to you. In fact, he's so starstruck by, by Rachel that, that we told that the seven years just seem like days to him. After the seven years is up, Jacob goes to Laban and says, okay, I want my wife now. Send her to me tonight. Well, uh, Jacob the deceiver meets somebody who's more deceptive than him, Laban is twice the deceiver, and so Laban decides. Well, I'm not going to give you Rachel, second born, and you really don't give away the second born. You give away the firstborn. I'm going to give you my firstborn, Leah. Leah was not a pretty woman. In fact, we're told that she had kind of squinty eyes. She was homely, probably had buck teeth. Um, And so when the evening comes, he sends Leah into Jacob's quarters. Leah, Jacob sleeps with her. And in the morning, he wakes up, rolls over, and sees this squinty-eyed, buck-toothed woman, with a big smile, and he freaks. He runs to, to Laban and says, what did you do? He said, oh, I've got to tell you, we have this little custom in our culture. Yeah, you, you can't give away uh, the secondborn until you give away the firstborn. But I'll tell you what, if you work for me another seven years, I'll give you Rachel too. Now, without even consulting God, Jacob says, all right, it's a deal. I love her. I'll work seven more years and I'll take her. So he works the seven years and when they're up, he finally gets Rachel too. Now think about it. He's got two wives. I don't even want to think about it. Now he runs into the first problem. Rachel has a hard time getting pregnant. Meanwhile, Leah's popping out kids left and right. And Rachel gets upset because she feels inadequate. So here's what she does. She says to Jacob, look, I'm going to give you my maidservant that you can have children with her and they'll be my children. Now, not just give her, give him the maidservant. It's a marriage. She becomes another one of his wives. And so he takes the maidservant and he has children with her. And then shortly after this, Rachel is able to conceive and she has children. And when that goes on, Leah all of a sudden Stops giving birth to children. She can't give birth to children anymore. So what does she do? She's not going to be outproduced by Rachel. So she gives Jacob her maidservant and says, I want you to have children with her so that we can have more children. Can you see the craziness in this? I mean, I, I can't even picture... The craziness of this. And so here's one guy with four wives all competing to have more children. Finally, to the point that God says, Time to leave Haran. Pack up your stuff and head back home. And I will be with you. Well, Jacob packs up his stuff and he knows that Laban's going to be ticked. He's going to be ticked because Jacob's a good producer. I mean, their flocks just seem to multiply under Jacob like everything else. The grandchildren multiply, which means more workers. And so in the middle of the night, all of his wives, all of his grandchildren, all of his flocks, and he slips out. Laban finally realizes the next day what happened. And he goes out after him. And a couple days later, he catches up with him. But just before he catches up with him, God says this. You can't touch him. In fact, you can't even say a good word or a bad word to him. It's hands off. One problem solved. But now comes the second problem. He's going back home, and back home means Esau, a guy who wants to kill him. And so God assures him that you're going to be safe and everything's going to be fine. But Jacob hedges his bets, and so he sends a messenger on to Esau. And the messenger goes to Esau and says, "Um, look, my master who now calls you his Lord, which wasn't God's plan, wants to give you all of these great gifts, all of these goats and, 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 and all of this other cattle, and wants to give you uh, maidservants and uh, manservants. And he tries to bribe them. But the messengers come back to Jacob and say, he ain't buying. In fact, He's on his way to you right now with 400 men. Well, you can imagine how Jacob felt. Can't go back to Laban. And God's telling him to go home and he wants to go home. But he's not sure what to do. And so he he takes his people and he splits them in two groups and sends one up ahead and hopes that, that if they meet up with, with Esau, that they might be able to bribe him again with, with more cattle. And then the second group, um, he keeps behind in case the first group gets slaughtered, that the second group might at least es- escape. And that takes us pretty much to right where we are now. On that night before all but breaks loose, Jacob gets up. He takes his two wives, and really there are four, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of Jaboth. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Now he purposely wanted to be left alone because he wanted to seek God and he wanted to plead his case with God. But look what we read. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun. rose, And he was limping. Because of his hip. Now, let me get to the point of all this. Who's the guy? Well, the guy's God. Why would God show up as a man? And why would he wrestle? Did any of you watch the Olympics yesterday? Did you watch the wrestling? I'm telling you, you watch these guys. It's exhausting to watch. A guy shows up and wrestles with Jacob all night long. Now, at first, Jacob doesn't know exactly if this is God or if this is some angelic being, but he wrestles with him. And the angel, or as we know him to be, God, lets him wrestle all night long with him until finally he says, enough. He knocks Jacob's hip out of joint, and all Jacob can do is just hang on to him. Why does Jacob hang on? Because he knows he can't beat him, but he wants to be blessed by him. He wants to be assured by him that, that God is still with him. Here's the point of the story. The extent to which we trust God is the extent to which we struggle in life. The extent to which we trust God is the extent to which we struggle in life. You see, when you, look at, when you look at Jacob's life, his life was a life of just wrestling and struggling. Wrestling and struggling with his brother and struggling with his father and then struggling with his father-in-law and finally struggling with God. And his life, was painful. In fact, his life, when you look at it, was crazy and miserable. Because the extent to which we struggle with God, the extent to which we don't trust God, is the extent to how much we're going to struggle in life. See, I don't care what you're struggling with right now. You're struggling with God. You say, no, I'm struggling with my wife. I'm struggling with my husband. You're struggling with God. You say you're struggling with your finances. No, you're struggling with God. Because your finances would be what they were supposed to be if you were trusting God. I don't care what it is that you're struggling with. The truth is you're struggling with God and and here's the thing God honors us wrestling with him God honors us struggling with him and we still lose but God honors it because struggling wrestling it's a contact sport it's one where we can't win but it's one God honors because at least We're engaging with him. The problem is we're engaging but not fully. Why do you struggle? Why do you struggle to trust God? Even when you say you believe God. Here's the thing. You can look at the word belief and trust and they look like the same words, but they're really not. When we believe, what we're saying is that we look at the information and we believe it's true. We believe it. We don't doubt it. The problem is while we believe in the information, we also believe and all the other information around us that causes us to fear. You see, the difference between belief and trust is belief believes the information, but trust believes in it without any fear, without any hesitation without any shrinking back from action. Jacob believed God. When God said, I'll be with you, he thought, that's a great idea. But then when he heard that Esau was coming with 400 men, he thought, yeah, this is a great idea, but, but i got to come up with something else. And he made himself miserable. He struggled in life more than he had to struggle. You and I struggle in life more than we have to struggle. God will let you struggle because God will honor you struggling. But you never win when you struggle against God. You only win when you're ready and willing to trust God. You ever notice that when you struggle, it takes up all the energy in your life? Think about the things that you're struggling with. Struggling to get a new home, struggling to get a promotion, struggling to make your marriage work, struggling to stay out of an addiction. Struggling to believe and struggling to trust. Struggling just takes so much energy out of us. In fact, Jacob got to the point that he was struggling with God and God had to cut it short, knock out his hip and basically cause him to just hang on because he couldn't even struggle anymore. That's what God wants from us. God looks at us struggling in life, and that's not what he wants for us. What he wants for us is to trust him so that we don't have to struggle so much in life. What if you went to work this week facing the same crew, facing the same people that aren't crazy about you, and you just said, you know what? It's not my problem. It's not my struggle. To do. And whatever happens, it's up to God. It's up to God to turn it around and fix it. Whatever happens in my marriage, it's it's up to God. I'm just going to trust. Whatever happens in my broken friendships. I'm just going to trust God and do what he would have me to do. And you know what you'll find? You'll find that life doesn't have to be such a struggle. We struggle because we believe. But fear comes in and our belief doesn't move to trust. We believe, but we're torn because we feel like we have to step in for God. What does God want us to do? One, to remember, we just have to live knowing we owe, that that God's our master. And that everything we have, we owe him. And if if I get that right, if I live each day knowing I owe God, then I don't have to struggle with anything. All I have to do is look at giving what I owe. Do you have those up there, Andreas? Second, stay in today. What gets in our way with fully trusting God? We start worrying about tomorrow. Jesus spoke so much and Paul spoke so much about worrying about tomorrow, worrying about the future. Do you know you weren't built to live in the future? You weren't. In fact, Jesus commanded us not to worry. He said, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. They don't spin or toil, and your heavenly father takes care of them. How much more will he take care of you? If you try to live in tomorrow, you will become neurotic. You will become a mess, and you will struggle, and you'll struggle with God. We're to live knowing that we, we owe Therefore, we just give up. We, we give up to God. And we just live in today, and we are thankful for today. Let me ask you a question. How many of you anticipate awful things are going to happen to you the minute you leave here? Yeah. How many of you think that awful things could happen in this next week? More than a raising your hands. How many of you think awful things could happen in the next few months? And yet, so far God has brought you here to today and nothing awful is going to happen today. don't struggle with tomorrow tomorrow's in God's hands just live gratefully knowing that I owe everything to me. he's my I don't have a right to think beyond what he wants from me all I have to do is trust and obey and that means just stay in today thirdly Trust in better things. How many of you watch the news? How many of you watch news stations that make you afraid? Which is just about all of them. And you can get so lost in that that you think, oh, God, wait till the elections come. We are in such big trouble. Wait till I see what happens to my retirement. Wait till I see what happens with my jobs. We never think, you know what? God has so much good for me. God said to Jacob, go home. Go to the place that I Have called you to go to, and you're going to be great. In fact, uh, the word uh, Israel means in different translations. One translation is chief. Chief, when he used to be a cheat. And God says, I have great things for you in the future. How many of you believe that God has great things for you in the future? And yet you still worry about a month or two down the road. Isn't that crazy? The extent to which you trust God is the extent to which you will struggle in life if you can truly say, I owe God and I'm his and I just live for his next word. If you can live just saying, I live in today. If you can live just saying, God has made me all sorts of great promises about tomorrow and all the tomorrows to follow right through eternity. Then you'll be able to trust God and not fret your life away struggling. Jacob is a, is a great reminder of what happens when you don't trust God, even while you believe in Him. Because you can believe, but fear will kill belief. It takes more than belief. It takes trust. It takes living in the day, giving God the praise you owe, and looking forward with joy for all He has in the future. And if you can do that, you've become a man, you've become a woman. You don't have to lose teeth, you don't have to go through rituals. If you can do that, then every day can be a blessing. Every day can be a gift given to you, not ground fought for. And every day will be the day that the Lord has made for you. Let's pray.